Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the continuing reports of Chinese state interference in Canadian elections. The heat really rising in Ottawa on this story now. A lot of pressure on Justin Trudeau and his government. The latest on this file now, Global News reporting today, two internal intelligence reports one in 2019, another one in 2022, allege government of China, the government of China secretly funneled money to election candidates in Canada. Earlier reports suggested China worked against conservative party candidates because they wanted Trudeau's liberals to be reelected. So this is just the latest bombshell report. It's damaging to Justin Trudeau and his government for sure. On Monday, the Prime Minister announced a review into this. Have a listen. Today, I'm announcing that I will be appointing an independent special rapporteur who will have a wide mandate and make expert recommendations on combating interference and strengthening our democracy. All right, let's discuss it now. Both sides of it for you. Liberal MP Randip Sarai, who represents Surrey Centre in the House of Commons. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Randip, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Always a pleasure and happy Women's Day to everyone listening. Thank you, Randip. Also on the line is Michael Cooper, Conservative MP in Ottawa from St. Albert, Edmonton. Very pleased to welcome him back. Michael, thank you. Great to be here. Okay, thank you to both of you. Michael Cooper, let me go to you first. Let me know your thoughts here on this story and, and some of the revelations we've learned here in the last 24 hours. It's just more evidence that the Prime Minister was fully aware of Beijing's interference in our elections, and he did nothing about it. He didn't follow the advice of CSIS, which is to be uh, transparent, to provide sunlight, and to make known to the public foreign interference. He instead kept the Canadian public in the dark. And now uh, he has announced uh, a a special rapporteur that is uh, nothing more than a bureaucrat who's going to to, uh, report back to the prime minister. And he wants to, instead of being transparent and open so we can get to the bottom of Beijing's interference, instead uh, wants uh, this inquiry to be determined by uh, a secret committee Uh, with secret evidence and secret conclusions redacted by the PMO, the very same PMO uh, that has a lot to answer for. The Prime Minister is in a conflict here. He he absolutely should not be redacting any reports. What what we need is a public inquiry, which the Prime Minister has blocked, and we need to allow the work of the PROC committee to continue to do its work, which liberals yesterday filibustered and then didn't show up well, let me give let me give the let me give the liberals a chance here to respond. So, Liberal MP Randeep Sarai, go ahead. Look, uh, the Prime Minister, without any of these leaks beforehand, has already done three separate inquiries and reports on this. The Rosenberg report, which was uh, done to look at the 2019 and 2021 elections, both conc- it concluded that while there were attempts 
the magnitude in Canada uh, did, was not enough to interfere with the election. Uh, in the NCI COP, which is a National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, which two Conservative MPs, Alex Ruff and Rob Morrison, also sit on, have unfeathered uh, access to top-secret documents and intel reports, concluded both in 2019 and 2021 that the federal elections were safe. Uh, though federal foreign interference attempts existed, the elections unfolded with integrity. They did that again. The protocol included independent assessments uh, of, of both 2019 and 2021. So these were already done. And now, okay. on top of that, uh, the committee has been at task to look at it again uh, based on the leaks or uh, rumors that have come out there, whether or not it has affected it. There's another group as well, the National Security Intelligence Review Agency, which is a group of uh, top-level uh, intelligent experts in the country who are looking at this, on top of it, a repertoire. So the government's already done three uh, reports on this integrity where the opposition members were present and able to do it and uh, concluded with those reports. Uh, and now the same body will be able to look at it again. Okay. New revelations. Michael, uh, so I think Michael the Cooper. on top of it. Michael Cooper, what do you think of that? Well, first of all, it's incredible that Mr. Sarai would uh, say that just because the overall uh, election was not impacted by Beijing's interference, that there's nothing to see here. Uh, what we have is uh, evidence, uh, including from Global Affairs Canada, the rapid response mechanism that detected uh, Beijing interference in the uh, 2021 election campaign targeted at conservative candidates. While the overall uh, election result may not have been impacted, it very well could have impacted the results in individual writings. And if it impacted even a single writing, that is a huge, huge problem. And, it, and Mr. Sarai's answer in regards to that just underscores how uh, unserious this government is when it comes to tackling okay. Beijing's interference. And as far as the Rosenberg report it is clear, uh, let's be clear, it only concludes that the overall impact of the election was not impacted. And I should add that uh, the credibility of that report is undermined, given that the Prime Minister appointed a crony to write the report, none other than the former CEO of the Trudeau Foundation, who was implicated in accepting a, a $200,000 contribution to the Trudeau Foundation by a Beijing communist-based political advisor. Randeep Sarai, why not a public inquiry? We've got the opposition parties calling for this, the appointment of this special rapporteur announced by the Prime Minister this week. I think most Canadians would not even know what that is. Why not do a public inquiry to clear the air? Well, I think that's the job of the special rapporteur. He's going to look into that. He's been given the mandate that if he feels or she feels that a formal inquiry uh, is required, uh, the government of Canada has already said they'll abide by that. So there's going to be three, two separate agencies, a special repertoire, all looking at this uh, to do this. And if the special repertoire, after seeing all the evidence, feels an inquiry is, is required, the government's already consented to that. So uh, I, I think these are the proper, uh, fair uh, assessments and, and, and decisions that a government should take and all the proper steps. And this is Good. national security. This is the integrity of our electoral system, and it must be upheld, and you got to do everything possible. I want to remind Coop. people, Pierre yeah. Polyev was the minister 
for democratic reform before this. He had the clearance levels. And the only thing he did was the quote unquote fair elections act, which the chief electoral officer called uh, it undermines its stated purpose and will not serve Canadians. Well, 160 professors did an editorial in the national post that say it's horrible. It'll actually take away democratic functions. He never at one point looked at this and this, issue of foreign interference existed during that time. Uh, Michael so his Cooper. priorities were not there, and he was directly assigned as a privy council and cabinet minister for this part. And that's the only thing he did, which was something horrible for the democratic process. So Michael what Cooper, our let's... government did before even this okay. was implement these three measures, which has accountability, opposition members, and Senate members on that body. Okay, let's give Michael Cooper a chance here. Conservative MP Michael Cooper, go ahead. Well, last time I checked, Pierre Polyev wasn't a cabinet minister when Beijing interfered in the 2019 and 21 elections, but Justin Trudeau was the prime minister. This happened under his watch, and he did nothing about it. Uh, as far as the special rapporteur goes, look, this is not something that is equivalent to a, uh, to a true independent inquiry. The special rapporteur, Mr. Uh, Sarai talks about the rapporteur get, having the evidence, reviewing the evidence. Well, the rapporteur doesn't have the full legal powers granted by the Inquiries Act. Uh, the rapporteur won't have powers to compel uh, the testimony of witnesses and the production of documents. And, and as far mm. as uh, the government, how, how can we take anything this prime minister says at face value? This is the same prime minister who said just a week or two ago that uh, he respected the work of the Procedure and House Affairs Committee and the work we're doing to get to the bottom of Beijing's interference. And then we saw what happened yesterday uh, when my motion was brought forward to call Katie Telford, who is the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, his top aide, uh, who is a critical witness to get to the heart of the scandal, and that is what the Prime Minister knows when he learned about it and what he did or failed to do about it. What did the Liberals do? They filibustered for three hours when opposition MPs showed up to get back to business after question period. The Liberals uh, didn't show up. So effectively, they shut the committee's work down. Okay, Randy, Randy Sarai. Yeah. Randy Sarai, you get the last word here. We started with Michael, so you go, go ahead, Randy. Sure. Well, look, uh, what PROC does in their committee is, is a purview of the committee. Uh, the PROC is not just a one-sided. It's, in fact, the, the opposition has probably more members on it than the than the, uh, than the Liberal government party on it, based on the current voting structure. Uh, so I'm not going to uh, comment on that. PROC members are more than welcome to do that. But I can assure the, everyone uh, that, that the Prime Minister on his own before today, the, these two studies of NCI, uh, NSI COP, the, the Committee of Parliamentarians that have top clearance of all opposition parties and governing parties and the Senate and the panel of national security intelligence advisors that are a, peer, uh, a group of experts all had already looked at this before any of these leaks come and they have privy to the same information that supposedly these leaks have and they have said that the integrity of the election has been there they've always said that there is attempts of foreign interference we're all privy to that there's multiple countries that do that and Canada has to be vigilant we've seen what it's done in the U.S. in the past uh, uh, with Russian interference so we are vigilant on it and the prime minister has implemented uh, three further uh, studies to look at this and he has not ruled out a, a, a national inquiry and if okay. a public inquiry is required uh, the special rapporteur says he doesn't have enough evidence needs it he will give him the tools and he will abide by that recommendation all right gentlemen i want to thank you for a good discussion i appreciate both of you being here thank you very much 
Okay, here we go now with the story that erupted last week. The two B.C. companies that claim they had received licenses from Health Canada to manufacture and sell cocaine. Now, this story uh, was quite astonishing the way it rolled out here, and both companies later kind of walking back these statements. But we take a look at some of the original claims for these companies, Ad Astra Holdings, uh, one of them saying that they had received this license from Health Canada. Uh, they will explore how the commercialization of cocaine uh, fits in with their business model and to support the demand for a safe supply of cocaine. Is there such a thing as safe cocaine? Another company here, Sunshine Labs out of Victoria. Same thing. They also said they had received this license from Health Canada. And they're working on securing a global trade relationship to provide a safer supply of cocaine. I've got Dr. Julian Summer standing by. Have a listen to Premier David Eby here. This was his first reaction to these reports. I was astonished uh, by this announcement. Uh, I understand uh, that this company is indicating that Health Canada has given them some kind of authorization. Uh, it is not part of our provincial plan. Okay, this blew up in the legislature, too. Have a listen to this. This is Liberal leader Kevin Falcon facing off here against the Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. Commercializing cocaine as a business opportunity amounts to legalizing cocaine trafficking. Full stop. So why has this Premier allowed for the commercialization of cocaine? That is just nonsense. We do not support the commercialization of cocaine in British Columbia or the country, Honourable Speaker. Government, if the federal government has granted a license, then they should be taking it up with the federal government. They're the one who made that license. Okay, let's discuss this now. Is there such a thing as safe cocaine? And now that these companies have walked back these claims here and saying that the license does not allow them to sell cocaine to the public, where does it all go from here? Is this a sign of things to come here as we talk about a safe supply of drugs? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Dr. Julian Summers. Dr. Summers is an addictions addictions researcher at Simon Fraser University. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Dr. Summers, thanks a lot for coming on. Great to be with you, Mike. Okay, first of all, your thoughts on this whole strange episode that erupted last week here over a few days with these two companies making these claims about cocaine. I know that one of the companies had quite a spike in their stock price, uh, interestingly, on the stock exchange after that announcement. What do you think about all this? Um, I'm I'm astonished that uh, David Eby is astonished. Um, he, his 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 government has been um, uh, officially supporting um, the one-two punch of decriminalizing possession, followed by ramping up a public supply of addictive drugs. It's in the petition they sent to Ottawa. The the provincial health officer's document describes, lays this out very clearly. The next step must be ramping up the pharmaceutical supply. The drugs that they're referring to are exactly the ones that are showing up in the toxicology results of people dying from poisonings. And those, by the way, are not, uh, those, those, are, those tend to be multiple drugs in almost everyone. It's multiple substances, so, um, including cocaine. So, so the, the 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 whole intent of their of following through on their on their stated policies requires 
having sources for these drugs. So, as I said, I'm, I, it, 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 it sort of de- defies credulity that, that anyone in the government backing this plan would be astonished to learn that there are licensees. Is there such a thing as safe cocaine? Like, what do you think of that concept? We often hear that we look at the terrible toll of drug overdose deaths that are continuing. We just got new numbers from January. So we see hundreds of people, thousands of people dying from illicit drug overdoses in our in our province. And we're told the, pro- the problem is this toxic drug supply of illegal street drugs laced with fentanyl in many cases. So does right. it not does it not make sense then if like if someone is going to do drugs anyway if they're going to do cocaine anyway give them some sort of lab tested pharmaceutical grade cocaine that's not laced with fentanyl that's going to kill them um, so you know if you if you ask uh, anesthetists um, is there a, a safe application for fentanyl they'll say for sure obviously it's it's a go to for general anesthesia. You ask ear, nose, and throat specialists, is there a safe application for cocaine? They'll say, of course. It's the go-to for many of our procedures as a, as a, as a, as a topical or local anesthetic. Um, so the, the, the question really isn't about the, the inherent characteristics of the drugs. Um, it, it, it really needs to be about the context where people are using it. And when we're talking about people who are homeless, Unemployed young people, disproportionately people who've been in our foster care system, many experiencing symptoms of severe mental illnesses. So the idea that that who are the people who are dying, the people who are dying showing up over and over again in the poisoning stats are unemployed people who tend to be without any kind of social connections and support and they're suffering. And so the idea that it's somehow air quotes safe to provide somebody living on the streets with bipolar symptoms, for example, with a supply of cocaine, I think a layperson can see that does not sound good, and it's not good. There's far better we could be doing, um, and, uh, and, and far better that, uh, that other jurisdictions who are making a difference are doing. Remember, we're the only place on planet Earth that is both decriminalizing possession of drugs and providing them to people who are living in despair. Okay, speaking of decriminalization, that is now the law of the land here in B.C. British Columbia requested this exemption from the federal government. Ottawa granted it. It is no longer a criminal offense to possess up to 2.5 grams of certain illegal drugs, including fentanyl, cocaine, heroin, ecstasy. So you're allowed to possess these drugs. Police will not charge you. Uh, They will not take your drugs away from you if you have these small, so-called small amounts. Let me let me ask you about, you know, the government will consistently say that doesn't mean that we're opening up uh, the market or making these drugs available to people or legalizing them or that it's legal to sell or traffic these drugs. So I just wonder, though, if you think that we're looking at the thin edge of the wedge here on this. Let me play another clip here for you. This is in the legislature this week. So this is liberal MLA Shirley Bond. Again, talking about the commercialization of drugs after these two companies claim to have a cocaine license. And then you'll hear an interesting response here from Premier David Eby. Let's have a listen and I'll get your thoughts. To the Premier, how many companies have received approval, have applied, and are awaiting approval to possess, produce, sell, and distribute drugs like cocaine, heroin, and ecstasy? People who want to commercialize hard drugs... People want to sell hard drugs and profit from that in our province. If that company wants to do that, 
We're going to take their lab. We're going to take their business. We're going to take their homes, Honorable Speaker, just like we did with the Hells Angels clubhouses. Just like we did to the Hells Angels. So the government there, they seized the Hells Angels clubhouses. And you hear the premier there, Dr. Summers, saying, like, if, if anyone starts trying to sell cocaine, we're going to do the same thing to them. What do you think of that? Well, it's clearly, uh, I mean, it's theater. There's, 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 there, there can't, there's no truth to what he's saying. It, he's, he's posturing outrage, you know, and by the way, I mean, I give him like seven out of 10 for, 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 for theatrics. But look, he has a former provincial health officer who's partnered with the scientific director of the Michael Smith Foundation to establish a heroin company that advertises itself online as providing a treatment for opioid dependence, opioid addiction, right? And um, this is all happening in public. These are people he meets with, takes advice from, and who are in part the contributors to the current policy. It is simply like, how can he stand up in the ledge and say that if you're going to be trying to sell these drugs to people, um, we're going to come after you. He's complicit in the entire business. So, no, uh, there's there's no part of that statement that even makes sense. How do you think decriminalization will affect the the problem and the crisis we have here right now? Like the idea, the government says they want to remove the stigma of drug addiction. So if you make possession of small amounts of drugs effectively legal, maybe that will encourage more people to be upfront and honest about their their drug problems and, and get help or get treatment. Does that, as a researcher, does that make sense to you? Like, if you decriminalize, it will encourage people to get help. Well, no, um, and and you know, don't don't take it from me. Take it from um, authorities that have looked at the crisis recently. The Stanford Lancet Commission spent about two years examining the, the, the root causes of the poisoning crisis in Canada and the U.S. Among the things they say not to do, uh, only a, there's a short list of things. The long report saying all the things we ought to be doing to help people move forward with their lives. And by the way, it's not about ending drug use. It's about ending addiction, which we know how to do. But, but of the two things they say not to do, one is don't dispense drugs from vending machines. Do not try to introduce a pharmaceutical supply in the hopes of displacing the illicit supply. We're doing both in, in B.C. If you ask our colleagues in, in Portugal, they're on the record saying if all we did was decriminalize, we would have made things much worse, not better. That's not what that's not the active ingredient in what, our what intervention. Else, what else did they do? They did decriminalize, but then they did other things, too, right? The main thing, so the and, the and decriminalization was a means to an end, not an end in itself. The means to an end so that police could come up to people, present not a, an arresting position, but hey, come with me. And the main thing they did was we commit to social reintegration. They say in their strategy, strictly speaking, there is no such thing as addiction treatment without social reintegration. Toward that, they instituted over 60 therapeutic communities. If you have that many therapeutic communities to address the harm of homelessness and displacement, you don't need consumption sites. Consumption sites are are another way of addressing the harms of being homeless with an addiction. You need a place to go and use with supervision and access to resources. But if you provide people with a home 
and supervision in those settings, then that's a different way of addressing the harm of homelessness. This, this, this crazy talk we have in BC about harm reduction versus recovery is made up. It's people not, mm. not referring to harm reduction as a thing, because you can address the harm of homelessness in various ways. They're, they're, they're describing what they do as harm reduction. My consumption site, my needle exchange, my, my overdose prevention site. And there, the fact is there are other and better ways of addressing the harms that people are experiencing. We have to open our eyes to those. <clears throat> okay, lots of calls here on decriminalization of drug possession and safe cocaine. Jeff in Abbotsford. Hi, Jeff, go ahead. Hey, how you doing? Um, for, to say that uh, people that are addicted are all you know, have mental illness and are on the streets and don't have support. It's not true because I've had three friends OD and die in the last five years. They all had families. They all had children. They had the support. The problem is they all ran up against was getting into recovery programs. Every time they wanted to get help, oh, you got to wait 30 days, 15 days. For an addict, if you wait 10 minutes, you're going to find a place to use. So when they need to go get help, they got to have the places to go to, and there's not enough of them. I think it's a great point, Jeff. Thank you for the call. Dr. Summers, your thoughts? I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, there, there are people in all circumstances who need assistance. Um, when I went and uh, um, met with members of the provincial government and, and recommended a, a shift toward greater supports for people to recover, um, I, I, was, I was treated with uh, um, uh, like, like, like real, real contempt and concern over using this term as though it meant I was somehow uh, lining up as a as a, a an AA abstinence oriented zealot. There's a real lack of understanding in our provincial government that people recover from addiction all the time, and when they need support, they need it now. We are yeah. woefully inequipped at, at offering that. Yeah, no, I, I've talked to I've talked to doctors in the system who have told me some heartbreaking stories about people who have come to them saying, "Look, I'm ready. I want treatment. I want detox. I want help." And then they have to be told that you have to wait weeks, maybe months, and people are dying while waiting. Jennifer in South Surrey. Hi, Jennifer. Go ahead. Yes, I'm so glad you're talking about this. I've been trying to be able to get towards talking about this. I've spent over 30 years in this um, helping people with uh, uh, addictions. And um, I started back in the 80s with the RCMP Victim Services Unit, and I remember when deinstitutionalization came and we had a whole swack of issues to deal with, including drug addiction. And I've been doing this ever since. Employment service centers, not-for-profits. And um, the fact is, is that people come in with a laundry list of um, problems and a laundry list of sometimes other drugs that they're taking, and um, and prescription drugs that they're taking once they enter into the system. Uh, so we're compiling drugs upon drugs, and we don't have any beds. When they need care, I have nowhere to send them. When they need counseling, I can't get access to counseling. Uh, recently, we went as far as Nova Scotia to find a counselor to work with a couple of our clients. Wow. Um, it's it's. The same thing that I saw back then is the same thing that I see now, that there is no such thing as safe drugs. And people that are trying to access, like the previous caller said, um, are from all walks of life. And okay. 
Yeah, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer, I, 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 I'm grateful to you for the call. I would love to speak to you further. Can you send me an email, please? Mike at CKNW.com. Just as we're up against the clock now, but I would like to speak to you more. So send me an email there if you can, if you'd like to. Mike at CKNW.com. Uh, we got more calls here, Dr. Summers. We can't get to. We'll just have to have you back. Thanks for coming on. Hey, fantastic, Mike. Great discussion. You've, uh, you've, you've, you've opened the door. Let's, let's just keep walking. Okay, here we go now with the topic we have covered before on the show, and that is mining for cobalt in the Congo in Africa. And if you have followed this story, this is really heartbreaking what is going on in this country. Now, cobalt is an essential ingredient to lithium-ion batteries that are in your smartphone, your laptop, and especially your EV. So the battery for your electric vehicle, this is a crucial ingredient to these batteries. 75% of it, somewhere in that region, uh, comes from this area of Africa. And there is literally like child labor being used to mine this stuff out of the ground. There is some shocking videos online I encourage you to check out showing some of these open pit mining mining operations for cobalt. It'll break your heart and kind of shock you. I got John Rustad standing by to discuss. Have a listen to this report here now from CBS News. They're digging in trenches and laboring in lakes, hunting for treasure in a playground from hell. Hard enough for an adult man unthinkable for a child and yet tens of thousands of Congolese kids are involved in every stage of mining for cobalt. Women and children are doing so-called artisanal mining but don't be fooled this is no quaint cottage industry. At barely 10 years old children lug heavy sacks of cobalt to be washed in rivers. From as early as four they can pick it out of a pile and even those too young to work spend much of the day breathing in toxic fumes. Yeah, I think the world is kind of waking up to this situation now and the reality of what goes into EV batteries and other batteries that are used around the world. Let's check in with John Rustad now, conservative MLA at the B.C. legislature. Very pleased to welcome him back. John, thanks for coming on. Mike, thanks for having me on. Okay, so let's talk about cobalt mining, and this is something that I know that, that is of, of current concern to you. When, when you have, tell me what you have learned about the situation there and some of the videos that we've seen, because a lot of these videos that have come out recently, the people who get these videos of these mines have to take a risk because there is security. I, I think that there's a lot of effort to kind of suppress what's going on there. But tell me your thoughts and your concerns here. Well, you know, the, the big issue is there's no such thing as a clean supply chain of cobalt from the Congo. And, you know, when you read the book Cobalt Red, there's a, a line right at the beginning that just, it brings tears to my eyes every time I hear it. And that is, you know, the lasting image I take from the Congo, the heart of Africa, reduced to a bloodstained corpse of a child who died solely because he was digging for cobalt. I mean, it's just horrendous when you think about the conditions that people are going through to power our lives. And I just find it completely unacceptable that as a province, we would be subsidizing electric vehicles and electric bikes and providing a privilege for HOV lanes for electric vehicle owners when this is what is being going into the batteries. You know, people will make their own choices about their consumer goods, and that's fine. But I just don't believe that tax dollars, particularly tax dollars from people that can't even afford an electric vehicle, 
should be going to subsidize this. We should take a stand. We should make a statement and we should ask the rest of Canada and the world to do the same. Okay, okay, I want to get into those details there of what you're proposing. Let me play a clip here for you from Siddharth Kara, who is an investigative journalist, a human rights activist. He's been a guest here on the show in the past. And he wrote the book that you just referred to called Cobalt Red, uh, revealing a, a lot of the situation. Here he is talking about the suffering, especially for children who toil in these cobalt mines. Have a listen to this. Throughout the whole history of slavery... I mean, I'm going back centuries. Never, never in human history has there been more suffering that generated more profit and was linked to the lives of more people around the world ever, ever in history than what's happening in the Congo right now. Okay, that's a pretty big statement to say that there's never been more suffering for profit than what we're seeing right now, including in the whole history of slavery. And he does he does a pretty good job backing it up in the book. Your thoughts, John? Well, there's no question and when you look at it, you know, what he says in the book, you know, that <clears throat> all sources of cobalt, you know, contained slavery, child labor, forced labor, debt bondage, human trafficking, hazardous and toxic work conditions, you know, pathetic wages, injury and death and incalculable environmental damage. I, I mean, you just he's gone. He's seen this on the ground. He's taken the pictures. You know, the reports are there. And it's just wrong for us to turn a blind eye to this. You know, we, we should be better than that. We should not be you know, destroying their environment in an attempt to try to improve ours. And I just think as a society, we can do better. When we have covered this story on the show in the past, we've talked about, we're talking about some of the biggest, most powerful corporations on on the planet, whether it's Apple, Tesla, Google. I mean, they've all, they're all producing products that use batteries that have this stuff in the batteries. And when they are challenged about this cobalt mining using child labor, slave labor, they will say, well, no, 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 we don't support child labor. We don't support slave labor. We got clean cobalt here. The, the cobalt in our batteries, and they're not from these these mines where little kids are working. How do they know that? How do they know that, though? Your thoughts? The, the bottom line is that all the cobalt that's, that's extracted from the Congo... <clears throat> Um, the, the amount that comes in from the um, artisanal uh, laborers, the, the child laborers, it gets mingled with the rest of the cobalt. There is no way, even Elon Musk says, he would pay a huge amount of money to be able to, to, to remove that from the, from the supply chain. But he can't because it comes in, it gets bought, it gets mixed with the rest of it. Then it goes off to China where you know, 80% of the world's cobalt is refined and it produces 75% of the lithium batteries. That we use that we use today. There's no way to be able to break it forward. And so mining companies can say, you know, their procedures. And and yes, you know, who's going to go to the Congo and confirm it that there yeah. isn't these type of conditions, right? And and so it's it's one of those things that uh, can be said. But at the end of the day, uh, the misery and suffering is clear. The evidence is there, and we should do what we can. I think to stand up and say this is not right. Yeah, and the cobalt supply chain that you're talking about there is is traced in this book, Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. This book has gotten a lot of attention. I, I spoke to the author of the book, Siddharth Kara, on the show about it a, a couple of weeks ago. And here he is making that point. So let's listen to another clip of him. And here he is describing how this stuff is 
is basically in all the battery-powered devices that we're using, that we're carrying around in our pocket right now. Let's have a listen here. The cobalt that's being mined in the Congo is in every single lithium-ion rechargeable battery manufactured in the world today. Every smartphone, every tablet, every uh, uh, laptop, and crucially, every electric vehicle. Um, So you and I, we can't function on a day-to-day basis without cobalt, and three-fourths of the supply is coming out of the Congo. Um, And it's being mined in appalling, heart-wrenching, dangerous conditions. Okay, so let's talk a little bit, John, about what you want to see done in BC on this file. Now, electric vehicles, when you buy an electric vehicle in British Columbia, it's subsidized by the government, right? You can get a rebate. That's correct. Yeah. Okay, and you and you uh, want and you want to cancel and you want to cancel that? Is that right? Yes. So I actually tried to move forward a motion, a motion on Monday morning in the legislature to create a debate on this, and the BC Liberals actually denied me uh, to move forward this motion. It's one of the things that uh, can be done. These motions are moved by consent, and uh, they refuse consent. I don't know why they don't want to debate it, but you know, from my perspective, this is something that needs to be talked about. And there are lots of issues that we're facing as a province. But I tell you, as somebody who was not able to have children with my wife, when I hear about these conditions, it is just wrong. And there's no way as a province we should stand for this type of thing. Okay, let's talk about the HOV lanes, because I find this interesting too. So if you have an electric vehicle, you can apply to get a sticker on the back of your vehicle that will allow you to drive in an HOV lane even if you're just the driver, right? There's no one else in your vehicle. You can still use the high-occupancy vehicle lane if you have an electric vehicle, correct? That's correct. And that was originally set up because, you know, we're trying to encourage people to use electric vehicles. But, you know, the circumstances have changed in terms of our knowledge and understanding of what's been going on. And, And once again, I just, you know, I don't think that is a privilege that we should be providing as a province uh, to electric vehicle owners. So you're saying take that away. So, you know, if you're a single driver in an electric vehicle, no more special access to the HOV lane. You got to you got to be in the other lanes there by everybody else. I mean, let's be fair. Your your vehicle, you're driving, you know, taxpayers have paid for these HOV lanes. Why would you get a special privilege just because you're, you know, you you can afford an electric vehicle? Well, because we're trying to save the planet, right? We're trying to encourage people to go electric and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and that's why, right? I mean, and and despite, you know, the terrible conditions of this cobalt being dug up out of the ground in in Africa, if you talk to the experts, they'll still say that an electric vehicle is still better overall for the planet than an internal combustion engine vehicle. Do you accept accept that? I don't think we have enough time to get into all of that, but there's plenty of reports when you look at the full life cycle of electric vehicles, that the savings, if any, on uh, CO2 emissions is marginal. But there's an interesting report, actually, I just read the other day out of Norway, where two of the um, ferries, two of the, two of the companies that, that are providing ferry service in Norway, have actually banned electric vehicles because of the danger and the risk of fires. And so I'm oh. starting to wonder, oh. what are we doing here with, uh, with our ferries in British Columbia? So there's, there's okay. lots of components to think about. Hey, John, what would you say to a listener who's listening to this now? Like, oh, okay, this guy's a conservative MLA. He's just standing up for big oil. That, that That's what his interest is here. He's trying to stand up for the big oil companies here and tear down electric vehicles. What would you say to that? 
Well, uh, all I can say is to people that say that is read the book, Cobalt Red. Understand the conditions that are powering our lives today. Understand, you know, what, what is going into that. And then ask yourself, are we a citizen of this world? Should we be destroying their environment so that we can try to improve ours? And I don't think we should. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.